Welcome to the China in the World podcast, a series of discussions examining China's foreign policy and shifting engagement with the world. The China in the World podcast is brought to you by Carnegie China and hosted by me, Paul Hanley. Welcome, everyone, to the first panel of the Carnegie Global Dialogue series for 2022-2023. My name is Paul Hanley, and I'm the director of Carnegie China, and I'm glad to be joined today by my colleagues and good friends, Da Wei, uh, Ian Chong, and Yun Sun, to discuss the future of U.S.-China relations uh, in the aftermath of a couple political events, one in China and one in the U.S., where we had in China the, the 20th Party Congress, and in the U.S. Uh, just yesterday uh, had the uh, U.S. midterm elections. For those of you who are familiar with our, or unfamiliar, I should say, with our Carnegie Global Dialogue series, this is our 11th year of hosting this series, and it's a series of uh, panel discussions that takes a look at China's evolving foreign policy and international role from the perspective of Carnegie scholars and international experts at each of our global centers across the globe. Uh, you'll be able to find replays, if you're interested, of this dialogue and, and actually all the previous dialogues uh, within our Carnegie Global Dialogue series on Carnegie China's China in the World podcast. Today, let me, uh, let me turn and, and introduce uh, each of our experts. Here with me, uh, in, I'll, I'll start with um, the scholar that's closest to me uh, physically, and that's uh, Ian Chong, who's with me here in Singapore. We're both based in Singapore now. Uh, Ian uh, is a non-resident scholar now at Carnegie China. He's an associate professor of political science at the National University of Singapore. His research covers the intersection of international and domestic politics. He has a focus on uh, major power competition and security in Northeast and Southeast Asia, as well as cross-strait relations. As I mentioned, he's now a non-resident scholar at Carnegie China, which we're delighted about. And, and with Carnegie China, he'll be looking closely at U.S.-China dynamics in Southeast Asia and the broader uh, Asia Pacific. From the U.S., uh, we have uh, Yun Sun, senior fellow and co-director of the East Asia program and director of the China program at the Stimson Center. Um, I know our audience is familiar with uh, Yun Sun. She's an expert, experienced scholar and analyst on U.S.-China relations, China's foreign policy. Previously, previous to the Stimson Center, she was a visiting fellow at the Brookings Institution, where she focused on China, Chinese national security, decision-making processes, and China-Africa relations. And prior to Brookings, uh, Yun Sun was a China analyst at the International Crisis Group. Um, and last but not least, uh, from Beijing, China, this evening, um, in this evening Asia time, uh, we have with us uh, Professor Dawei, who is the director of the Center for International Security and Strategy um, at Tsinghua University, also a professor uh, of international relations at the School of Social Sciences at Tsinghua University. And we're fortunate to have had Dawei join us several times in the past, uh, including for our Carnegie Global Dialogue. In fact, I think uh, Dawei probably attended one of our first Global Dialogue roundtables back in 2011. My staff tells me that uh, you've got you've got that much history with uh, with uh, Carnegie China. So we appreciate you joining you. us again. Prior to Tsinghua, Dawei was Assistant President of the University of International Relations. Previous to that, he was Director of the Institute of American Studies 
uh, at the China Institutes of Contemporary International Relations. So thank you all for, for joining us. Before we kick off the discussion, uh, let me just say first, we want to give the audience an opportunity tonight to ask questions. Um, if, if you'd like to submit a question, you can use the chat function on YouTube. Secondly, we'll post a recording of this discussion um, on the China and the World uh, podcast, where you'll be able to find it afterwards. Okay. Um, in the past couple months, we've witnessed now, as I mentioned up front, two major political events that have the potential to shape the trajectory of U.S.-China relations going forward uh, for the for the for the for the next year, if not next, you know, several years to come. Uh, namely, the 20th National Congress of the Chinese Communist Party, which took place in October uh, in Beijing, and then yesterday uh, in the United States, the midterm elections. Um, in Beijing, the 20th Party Congress, which is you know held every five years, I think you can say it uh, was a watershed event in Chinese politics. I think we, it's fair to say that. Um, uh, Xi Jinping secured an unprecedented third term as general secretary uh, and uh, made major uh, changes in personnel in the Central Committee, in the Politburo, and in the Politburo Standing Committee. Um, and the Standing Committee is now filled uh, with uh, loyalists and protégés of, uh, of President Xi. There doesn't appear to be uh, any balancing of power with other factions or interest groups as, as we've seen uh, in the past. We also saw some uh, previous norms uh, in terms of age limits, um, and clearly a move, you know, move movement further away from collective leadership. So, you know, quite a few changes I think that we saw, and we can talk about some of those tonight. Um, I will say economic development was mentioned as an ongoing priority in the work report, uh, and also in President Xi's speech. But there's a quite a bit of debate out out there about you know how high of a priority it will be, or what the balance will be with other priorities that were highlighted, uh, including, for example, national security, social stability, and ideology. And it seems quite clear that national security is poised to play a much larger role in the leadership's priorities going forward. Now, in terms of the U.S. midterms, um, we're still watching the results come in, um, but some things um, are clear. There are millions of votes yet to be counted, I should say, uh, as we're as we're uh, live tonight, um, but early estimates suggest that um, the Republican Party is on course to win back control of the U.S. House of Representatives first time in four years. The Senate, however, uh, remains too close to call. Um, there are 35 seats up for election this year in the in the Senate, which has obviously 100 seats but there's only a handful of, of closely contested races. Um, and a net change of one seat toward the Republicans would give them control uh, because the Senate sat at 50-50. Right now, we're waiting on results from Senate races in Arizona, uh, Nevada, Wisconsin, um, and Georgia, which looks like it'll go, go to a runoff election in December. Um, and until those races are decided, we won't know uh, what happens uh, with the Senate. But the Democrats have had control, unified control of Congress for two years. And with the Republicans uh, certainly going to take the House, uh, no matter what happens in the Senate, the power dynamic is bound to shift. That we can uh, expect. 
So tonight, I look forward to discussing the impact of these two political events, one in China, one in the U.S., on the trajectory of U.S.-China relations. We can also discuss key issues in the relationship, Taiwan, uh, growing technology cooperation that we're seeing play out. And lastly, there's a real possibility, although it has not been announced officially, of an in-person meeting between President Biden and President Xi next week on the margins of the G20 in Bali, Indonesia, which will take place November 15th and 16th. So I look forward to discussing you know, the goals of such a meeting, uh, what can be accomplished, uh, if anything. And again, uh, to address these questions, um, I'm really delighted to have three top US-China experts. So let's get let's uh, let's start out with the first question, and we'll start uh, with U.S. midterms. Again, the votes have not uh, all been finalized in all the races, but it does look like the Republicans will take the House and the Senate could go either way. So I wanted to really just start out with each of you. I know it's early, and I don't don't expect that that you'll you'll have your analysis completely finalized here. But I wanted to just check to see what initial assessments or thoughts you might have on what the results, at least that we can tell to this point, what kind of impact they may have on U.S.-China relations, U.S. policy toward China going forward. Um, and given the political event is in the United States, I'm going to start, I think, with uh, Yunsun, who's closest to it. So over to you, Yunsun, for some initial thoughts. Thank you, Paul. Yes, we're all observing the midterm elections and the media have been going frenzy uh, about what that means for the U.S.-China relations. I think to begin with, if the Republicans do take the House, we know that the bipartisan consensus on China has been not only formed, but also solidified in the past five to six years. So to say that the Republicans will, will dramatically change the current discourse on China, therefore the U.S. policy direction, I think that's unrealistic. But um, Republicans may not make U.S.-China relationship uh, to look in a positive trajectory, but Republicans definitely will leave Biden less room on China. He will have less options. He will have less flexibility, especially on issues that he still seeks to uh, strike a conciliatory tone with China or try to manage the tension. Uh, I think the Republicans will give Biden administration less options and less room on that specific uh, on that specific issue. And we're also looking at special uh, what I call them special events or potential crisis because. Um, if the Republicans do dominate the House, like on the top of a lot of people's mind is that if Republicans do win and Kevin McCarthy does become the Speaker of the House, then uh, is he going to lead the largest ever congressional delegation to visit Taiwan after the inauguration of next year? Um, we know that President Biden and his team has had attempted to stop uh, Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi to uh, to visit Taiwan this past summer. So, um, and we can also foresee that now the 20th Party Congress is over in China, China's response to another visit to Taiwan by the U.S. Speaker of the House is not, well, it potentially could be much more escalatory than what we witnessed in, in August. So those events that are not under the White House control and potentially will be intensified under a, a Republican-led uh, led House of the Representatives are going to create more stress in mm. the U.S.-China relations as we can foresee. Thank you. Mm. Interesting. So, so no major 
policy direction changes um, because there is consensus, but yet it will probably give Biden less flexibility um, and, and a Republican control of the House may do things on China or Taiwan um, that you know, maybe are not things that the executive branch is looking to do is what I what I hear what I hear you saying. Ian, let me turn to you if I could, because one of the changes uh, that would take place in the House is that Republicans will take place of the oversight function and the power to investigate. Um, and there's a lot of speculation that, uh, you know, over the last two years, the Democrats investigated the January 6th attack on Capitol Hill. Um, and had hearings on abortion and health care. These, you know, the, their their set of priorities. Republicans, you know, clearly have a different set of priorities. Whether you know, it, it includes, uh, you know, probably, uh, you know, looking at the border issues, or they may want to do some investigation on the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan. But one that comes up is is Joe Biden's, uh, President Biden's son, Hunter Biden's laptop. Um, and of course, Hunter Biden uh, scandal involves a piece about his ties to China. Uh, there's also speculation that um, there could be hearings uh, where the Republicans invite U.S. CEOs to come and testify, um, asking questions about you know their business in China. Are they helping prop up the Chinese Communist Party? Are they helping state-owned enterprises? You know, are they are they helping China advance its uh, surveillance state or or help uh, the Communist Party commit human rights violations? Um, what what's your sense on the kind of if if those kind of things take place? If we see more of that, do you think first of all there's a chance of that? And second, how do you see the impact uh, on the relationship itself? So uh, there are a couple of things I'd note. Um, one is I agree that there will likely be a different set of investigations. Um, the Hunter Biden one, I think, uh, you know, if it takes place, how much, um, you know, how much traction it gets, I, I think it's a slightly different issue. Republicans have been trying to you know, make a hay out of it. But uh, on substantive issues, I'm not sure how much it actually affects uh, the administration now, except politically. But I think the more interesting um, one and probably the 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 stickler will be uh when uh, if there are hearings on um us uh, for, on us companies us ceos i think the one that actually looms large in my mind is twitter right because elon musk has you know put out positions that seem very china friendly um twitter is a very um uh used platform by us politicians and media so i think that might come uh, under some scrutiny uh and how that plays out i think um uh could really uh, send some ripples uh, in the US-China relationship. I think the other thing that might come up is TikTok, right? Because there's been reports of TikTok um, sending personal information of its users uh, to to people in China that's been, I mean, it's sort of come come again and sort of gone again, but it's always sort of simmering under the surface. So I can see, see that come up. Um, those those hearings, depending on what happens, you know, has the potential to, I think, uh, in, inflame a lot of feelings, which will further, I think, hem in uh, what the Biden administration can do. Um, that's on the sort of U.S. domestic front. I just like to add to that if there is more going to be more um, uh, tension or distance between the U.S. and China on the technology, uh, on technology, um, what might happen too is um, you. Know, 
other countries in the region that are part of that whole supply chain and the sort of technology chain, places like Singapore, places like Taiwan, Korea, Japan, um, they will be under uh, a lot more pressure, right? Uh, on which, which side they go, how they uh, shield off different parts of their businesses. So I think um, the sort of business hearing bit uh, potentially has some legs. And I, I personally watch that. Mm, very interesting. Um, Dawei, over to you, and I'd really be interested, um, you know, in your sense on how these midterms were perceived in Beijing, in China, um, you know, and 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 one aspect, <laughs> is obviously, losing con Congress um, could be seen as a sign of of President Biden's political weakness, um, and I wonder whether Chinese leaders might be less inclined. To work with him, uh, will they sit back and wait for a new administration in 2024? What's your thoughts on that? Yes, uh, first of all, uh, thank you, Paul, for having me and uh, and uh, talking with two old friends on this mm -hmm. issue. I think from from Beijing's perspective, uh, generally speaking, uh, we uh, we follow that election, and uh, I think the mainstream view here is no matter. Who win the uh, who control the House and the Senate? The policy, uh, just like uh, what Sun Yun said, won't change a lot. But of course, probably could be bad, could be worse. But uh, generally speaking, the whole direction will be the same. Well, uh, if the two, if the Republican control the two houses, two uh, two houses, I think the Biden will become uh, you know so-called lame duck. Uh, president, but uh, I don't think Beijing. Even if that happened, I don't think Beijing uh, will uh, will wait there. We will sit there and wait for a new president because it's too dangerous. Uh, there are still two two years uh, for the for this term of President Biden, and uh, two years is quite a long time. We can we cannot squander the two years, and uh, and uh, even beyond this term, we don't know who win the election in. Who will be president after 2024? And again, it could be worse. So um, I think it will be uh, wise to uh, utilize next two years to uh, try to stabilize the bilateral relations with the United States. But of course, uh, if the Republican control the legislation, legislative branch, it could be difficult. It could be difficult. But I don't see, and I have, I have not seen or heard anybody. Talking about um, let's let's abandon, let's wait for the next president, and Biden is too too weak. Uh, I don't think it's a it's a it's a mainstream view here, but people do have concern that Republicans may cause more trouble in the Congress. Hey, thanks for listening to the show. If you've enjoyed listening to the China in the World podcast, you'll want to check out all the other great podcasts produced by the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. My colleagues around the world talk with ambassadors, leading journalists, and world-class scholars on some of the most pressing international issues. You can find the links to the other Carnegie podcasts in the show notes. Thanks again for listening. Yeah, I think you know e even if the Dems do manage to maintain control of the Senate, you know, with a with a divided government, it will be very difficult, if not impossible, for yeah. Biden and the Democrats to pass any legislation. Um, and even if the Republicans take the Senate, there's a lot that uh, the Democrats can do in terms of uh, blocking uh, using the filibuster rule, 
Um, significant legislation needs 60 votes. So I think, you know, for the next two years, we may have some legislative gridlock uh, ahead of us, sort of be the name name of the game in my mind. Um, let's switch to the 20th Party Congress. And, you know, I mentioned, you know, some perspectives in terms of uh, Xi's enhanced focus on national security. Um, I didn't mention, but I'll mention now, technological self-sufficiency was another theme that was uh, came out pretty strong. Strengthening socialist ideology and party unity. And of course, as I mentioned before, we're struck by the, the President Xi's move to, to basically put all his protégés uh, in the top positions in the Politburo Standing Committee. Let me start, if I could, in reverse order with Dawei. Um, you know, I'd start by just sort of what, what, what's your assessment uh, and what do you believe observers outside of China uh, may not have gotten right on the 20th Party Congress outcomes? And then, of course, what, what's your sense of what it means for foreign policy and U.S.-China relations going forward? Uh, yes, uh, I think probably the uh, the observers outside China may neglect the continuity in the uh, 20th Party Congress working report comparing with uh, the previous one, the five, the one from five years ago. Uh, like you mentioned, the uh, the uh, paragraph, the chapter on the national security uh, issues that being raised a lot, discussed a lot. Uh, outside China, of course, inside China too. But what I want to emphasize is actually uh, the uh, President Xi raised the, the, the concept of the uh, holistic uh, national security view uh, in 20, 2014, I think. That's already eight years ago. And actually all the content in that chapter, uh, I mean the chapter on national security, uh, I, I think uh, are not new. So basically, he repeated what he said in past eight years. The difference is the difference here is uh, there's no individual chapter in previous uh, 19th Party Congress and 18th Party Congress, and this time, it's an individual separate uh, separate uh, uh, chapter. But the problem is in the previous one, they put uh, uh, put the national security issue under social security. I think that's not normal. I think that's wrong. I think national security issue for every country is an important issue. So it should be, uh, it should have a separate uh, uh, chapter. So I think uh, it's just uh, back to a normal status. So we should not over uh, emphasize the, uh, the importance of that. But of course, comparing with 10 years ago, that's a big change. Uh, comparing with 10 years ago, but if we compare that to five years ago, I think it's not new. And another new another point I want to add is like uh, a lot of people talk about the change of the the so-called the, the the main theme uh, or the main topic of the of the this era, the peace and development. Uh, it disappeared from the 20th Party Congress working report. Yeah, that's a that's of course that's a change. But I want to add two things. Uh, one is. Um, um, though the old uh, main theme, uh, peace and development, uh, is not in the working report, but there's no replacement here. Uh, it means that maybe this issue, maybe the party want to use different paradigm. I mean, uh, just uh, try to uh, try to avoid discussing what is the, the main theme. Or oh, another explanation is is too 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 uh, important. It's still under discussion. 
So anyway, I mean, uh, it's um, if the party replaced peace, peace and development with, for instance, war and a revolution, that will be a dramatic change. But no, there's no replacement, right? So, and the policies in that working paper, for I mean, foreign policies, basically um, are not new. I, I don't see many changes in the in the policy dis, uh, description part. So, um, yeah, there are a lot of changes, particularly the assessment of the external environment. But I want to emphasize here is the continuity. We should not uh, uh, neglect this continuity in the report. And you mean on the continuity, you also mean with regard to foreign policy direction and yeah. U.S. China? I, I mean, generally speaking, I mean the foreign policy. And the foreign policy and also one country, two systems, the military uh, building, I think those national security related issues, I think I don't see uh, dramatic or important changes in the in the uh, policy part. Thank you, Dawei. Yun Sun, you're, you're, you're based in, in D.C. and uh, interact with a lot of Americans. You know, I'd be interested to know, you know, how do you think it was received there? Was continuity kind of the major theme that was taken away? Or did it reinforce, you know, sort of people's worst fears about the direction that, that China is moving? And, uh, you know, what's your sense of how that will impact U.S.-China going forward? Thank you, Paul. Um, you, you, you really raised the, the key question, and I think the distinction uh, or the differences between the Chinese interpretation and the American interpretation of what happened at the 20th Party Congress cannot be uh, more significant. Uh, I think when the report of the 20th Party Congress was first released, uh, I hear that the media and observers across the board are saying, well, Continuity is a is a keyword, because you read through the uh, 20th Party Congress report. I think the comment was you can pretty much identify every single sentence <laughs> in an already released government statement or government policy in the past two years. So I think that is very true. If you look at the uh, the new concept that has been raised, um, it's it's really not that uh, that. That's striking. But then I think Dawei also raised a terrific point that what is the reference point here? That if you compare things to what happened in the past two years, maybe there is a strong sense of continuity. But if you mm -hmm. compare the two, for example, the report from the 19th Party Congress, then I would say that the distinction or the differences are really striking on the issue of Hong Kong, on the issue of one country, two systems, on the issue of Taiwan, as well as on the issue of uh, basically the external environment that China faces. Uh, other than the, the peace and development as the two main themes of the of the era has disappeared from the report, I think another, another key word that people have paid a lot of attention to is whether China still refers to the, the window of strategic opportunity is still open. And we have seen this repeatedly in the previous uh, party congress reports, but this time that term has also has also been removed. But so overall, I think it reflects a judgment or an assessment that for China, the sense of crisis, sense of insecurity, sense of external threat, and also the word the struggle that has been um, that has been used quite frequently in the party congress report i think that those senses have been heightened to an unprecedented level at least people have not seen those uh, that 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 high level of reference in recent decades and then of course in uh, after the party congress we also have seen things in china uh, that arguably represent tighter domestic control 
And one example that people frequently talk about is the reemergence of the supply and the marketing cooperative, Gong Xiaoshe. And people have to wonder, what does that mean? What does that mean for the Chinese economy? And what does that mean for the Chinese China's relationship with the external world? And I'm afraid that from at least a foreign perspective, things are not going into a more open, more liberal, and a more accommodating and tolerant direction. Instead, what people do see is a tightening of the, of the environment. But of course, one disclaimer is that because of COVID, COVID quarantine and the restrictions, um, most of the Westerners, especially interlocutors and think tank scholars, have not been able to go to China for almost three years now. So that uh, that segregation, or the separation, physical uh, inability to have meeting and to, to see what's going on, have contributed significantly uh, to this perception because people don't know what is really going on. We can only read from the government documents and read what's being posted on the media. and. So far, the preliminary assessment is that things are not going into a um, a more liberal direction. Thank you. Mm. Thank you very much. So, Ian, uh, you you've heard you know Dawei's uh, interpretation there in Beijing, and Yunsun, who's who's in Washington D.C. Uh, help us understand it from Southeast Asia's perspective, or here in Singapore, and. How how is it different? How is the assessment of the twentieth party co Congress outcomes different from what we've heard from Dawei or Yunsun? And in terms of U.S. China, is your sense that it'll stay the same? That it'll get better, get worse over time? So I think um, a lot of the reading that uh, I see in our uh, part of the world it's it's a bit different from what, what you see in D.C. And, and what you see in Beijing. There is uh, certainly a lot of attention to the increased talk about struggle uh, that that uh, Yun had mentioned. Uh, there is uh, the so people have taken notice of the emphasis on security. Um, so, while I agree with Dawei, you know the difference over the past you know two to five year period hasn't been that great. But for Actors in this region who aren't sort of the major great powers of the world uh, and are therefore a lot more anxious, uh, the view is that China has been pretty tough over the past um, you know, five years and increasingly so. That trajectory seems likely to continue. Um, there is concern over the, the sort of... Uh, internal sort of uh, focus on technology and trade because as you know uh, many countries in southeast asia do look at uh, china as a big trading partner uh, so um there's a lot more trepidation about where things could go and i think one of the noticeable things uh from southeast asia is that there's a lot of quiet um and that um silence relative silence i think is reflective of a degree of uncertainty um there's a concern that um, if you say things uh, that Beijing does not like, it would get upset. It seems to have this habit of becoming upset on many things uh, very frequently. At least that's the read here. Um, and on the other is, well, um, they don't. There's no sort of sense of what to make of it. So do you sort of um, back off more? Do you try to uh, assert yourself, um, your your own voice a little bit more? Um, and the sort of holding pattern that you've seen for a while is this not choosing sides business, which is um, 
if you think about just the very wording, we do not wish to choose sides, it's a very passive policy, right? You're trying to, you're essentially have seated initiative and um, you're you're trying not, not to make any decision. Um, so uh, in that regard, I think it's reflective of this sort of worry that on the Beijing side, things will get tougher. And as we talked about on the Washington side, um, things don't look any easier. Uh, so there's a lot of effort to hide, I, I would say, uh, and um, not really, a clear idea of what to do, right? If there is more of a um, decoupling, if you will, between um, between uh, Beijing and Washington, if you think about Southeast Asia and Singapore in particular, we've really benefited, right, from being able to work with both both sides and sort of benefit from that. So if there's more distance, there's more tension, um, the strategy for it isn't as clear. Um, so as a friend of mine uh, describes, right, um, go, going to Mandarin a little bit, it's, um, you know, the region has really tried to you know, make use of you know uh, its relationship with both sides, but you could end up in a situation where you end up uh, where you end up you know offending both sides. So, uh,希望就是两边通吃，结果变成两边都不是人， right? So you, there's that real, real fear of, of that being squeezed in the middle, um, and there's no real idea what to do about it. Fascinating. Um, it's a fascinating description, uh, Ian, and I, I appreciate those those insights. Um, we should move to Taiwan because that's an issue, obviously, that affects not just U.S. US and China, but what I hear from friends and scholars and experts here in Singapore, you know, is a real concern uh, if tensions get much higher or worse yet, even conflict, that it'll have major repercussions here as well. Uh, and we've seen the tension growing uh, on this issue, certainly after the visit of uh, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi um, and the Chinese uh, reaction, the military reaction, uh, large-scale live-fire military exercises around Taiwan, and a persistent now and consistent presence, PLA presence, uh, around Taiwan. So a bit of a change in the military status quo. Um, that said, the 20th Party Congress Work Report reiterated China's longstanding position that it wants to solve the issue peacefully, um, but again, doesn't renounce the use of force if necessary. There was, however, it seemed much more emphasis on its opposition to foreign interference. And I uh, that's not obviously not new. Um, that's always been China's position, um, but it seemed louder this time. It seemed more pronounced this time. And I suspect that has to do with the United States but I also suspect that has to do with a worry that after Ukraine, uh, much of the world now is wondering uh, what will happen with Taiwan, and there's greater international attention. Now, in the U.S., we heard uh, Yun Sun say that, you know, with the Republican Congress, there could be quite a bit of provocations um, on Taiwan, or at least provocations seen from Beijing's side. Maybe Kevin McCarthy, as the new House Speaker, may travel to Taiwan. They may push on particular issues within within Congress. May push for a more provocative, more more uh, robust Taiwan Policy Act. So where does this all go? Um, and uh, are we headed, you know, towards much greater friction or worse yet conflict? And what can we do to to better manage the situation? And I think I'll start with my friend in Beijing, uh, Dawei, to share with us, you know, his insights. What can we do to reduce risks, avoid worst case worst case uh, outcomes? Uh, I'm quite uh, pessimistic uh, towards Taiwan issue. Uh, I think we are in the 
in a dilemma or we are in a, a reinforced dilemma. And I think the I have to criticize uh, some American pundits, uh, though I really reluctant to do that. But I mean, um, uh, viewing Taiwan uh, question from uh, Ukraine uh, lens, I think it's wrong. Uh, history does not repeat itself. Uh, it only dreams. So uh, uh, I think that's a totally different uh, issue. But to link them together, and uh, I think Nancy Speaker Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan, to be honest, it's uh, it was a mistake, and uh, the executive branch, the executive branch um, did not like that. I think that's that's true. So today, but uh, it looks like everybody, particularly analysts uh, outside China, just criticize China for overreaction. I think uh, I think first uh, that's an unnecessary provocation from the U.S. side, and uh, if you do that, I mean, if Americans side do that, China have to do something, and uh, that worries me uh, for next year. As Sun Yun pointed out uh, earlier, I think uh, uh, the next uh, uh, the, the the speaker could be Kevin McCarthy. Already said he will visit Taiwan and will lead a will lead a. a a very big delegation. If so, how could we expect China, expect Beijing to have different reaction? I think it's really hard for Beijing to do something different from August. And again, this is unnecessary. I think if Nancy Pelosi's visit was not uh, necessary, I don't think Speaker McCarthy's visit is in anybody's uh, interest. But I think he, if he want to do that, I think Beijing really have no other choice but to uh, at least react at the level like last August. So I think uh, that really disappointing me. Uh, I think uh, in the U.S., a lot of wrong uh, analysts, uh, uh, analysis like uh, like uh, a lot of people talking about 2027 timetable. There's no timetable. I, I live in Beijing. I've never heard of timetable. I don't know why so many people talk about timetable. And before the mm -hmm. party congress, so many American colleagues told me that Beijing will have new discourse in the party congress. Hey, those pundits should step out and give me an apology. There's no new discourse. And they told me that China will revise its anti-secession law next the spring. Let's wait and see if, if that will happen. I mean, so many wrong um, uh, analysis in DC. I think I really worry about that. I think we have to. I think the, we really to, we really need to change that. But mm. pro probably the starting point is um, the U.S. side should not give us unnecessary provocation. Yes. Thank you, Dawei. Um, uh, Yunsun, I want to I want to turn to you. Dawei's raised some important points. Um, first is on on Ukraine um, and and the fact that you know because the Russians invaded Ukraine, Xi Jinping and 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 uh, President Putin had the strategic no limit strategic partnership just before that it's brought international attention to the issue. You've traveled to Europe. I know I've talked to you and you've you've been in conversations, you know, discussions with other experts uh, in Europe on the issue. What, I mean, I'd be interested in your sense of. Um, you know, it, it, are there changes in the way Europe looks at the situation in with regard to Taiwan? Um, and second, um, uh, in terms of uh, of, of Dawei's uh, point 
um, about the United States, some observers um, and the analysis of all these, you know, different timelines, whether it's 2027 or 2035, you know, what's your sense of what's driving this type of analysis? I saw uh, a, a scholar at Stanford said that uh, there's a hundred percent chance that China would um, use military force to reunify Taiwan in the next five years. Uh, where where is all this coming from, in your sense, and you know why, why this type of analysis that that Dawei says? What I understand, what I what I hear Dawei saying is uh, it, it's 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 uh, it's a little bit off base, is what I hear Dawei saying. Well, I I to a certain degree I agree with Dawei in his uh, in his assessment, because as I think in recent years, uh, especially the past three two to three years, that uh, we have we hear this narrative almost on a daily basis. China is going to invade Taiwan, China is going to invade Taiwan. Um, and regardless of whether it is true, just that narrative has its impact, right? It first has an impact over the U.S. policy perception that if we do believe that the threat of a Chinese invasion or Chinese attack on Taiwan is uh, is imminent, then that will have a significant impact over how U.S. will plan its policy for a Taiwan contingency. And that, in turn, will boost U.S.-Taiwan defense ties, which in turn will be interpreted by Beijing as unilateral moves to change the status quo. But on the other hand, I also have to say that based on what we have seen, the narratives from, from China, this type of sense or this heightened sense of threat being received by the United States also has some of its origins based in uh, mainland China's action and mainland China's rhetoric. You could say, well, you could say that, well, those are just rhetoric and does not represent Beijing's policy. But you have to acknowledge that the Chinese media, well, assuming with the approval from the Department of Propaganda, have been talking about unification by force quite vehemently. <laughs> in the past several years. And every time that DPP does something in Taiwan, we hear the Chinese mainstream media, well, mainstream, quote, quote, mainstream media saying that, well, we need to we need to be prepared. Let's be prepared militarily. So uh, I, I, I do think that there is the interaction cycle that has made things worse between US and China on the issue of Taiwan. Um, but I also think that the war in Ukraine, if it serves as any precedent for, for China, it probably will be a, uh, I wouldn't say positive, but there is going to be an effect of deterrence of China's military plan against Taiwan, because it does say that the result of the war could be uncertain, that you might think that Russia was going to end the war in one week, but it turns out that, well, eight months later, we're still stuck in this. And secondly, is that the cost of the war is going to be significantly higher than what you can plan for or imagine before the war starts. Look at the political, diplomatic, financial, economic, trade, uh, the, just all the costs that Russia has to has to carry. So I would even say that the war in Ukraine has a deterrence effect over China if there is indeed a plan to attack Taiwan, which I don't think there is a timeline, because why would Beijing tie its own hand? and tie a, tie, tie a nook around its own neck and say, oh, by this date, we have to achieve unification. But in terms of Europe's position, my sense is that European countries want to support Taiwan. And morally, and from a political and diplomatic point of view, they are going to support Taiwan if there is an, if there were an attack. But on the other hand, for Europe to get involved militarily, I think that's a pretty far stretch. 
that Europe will express its, its position if there is indeed a plan or indeed an operation to take over Taiwan militarily. But having that position is different from taking concrete actions to support United States or to support Taiwan in that uh, in that contingency. Last but not least, I think China's position on the use of nuclear weapons during German Chancellor uh, Scholz's visit to Beijing, I think it does play a significant role mm. in improving mm. Europe's position, Europe's perception on, on China. So um, I, I do think there are a lot of things that China can do to manipulate Europe's position down the road. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Yunsen. All right, Ian, where, where where does this all go? What are we? You know, are we headed towards greater friction in your view? Um, and a little bit about regional perspectives uh, that you can add. Sure. Um, on one, I I am actually quite pessimistic, uh, and it's I mean it's not all because of what the U.S. do. I, I think, and it's not just all what the the Chinese uh, media has been saying. One of the things I really don't understand um, is with the in the lead up to the Pelosi visit, right? Apparently, the Chinese government uh, tried to uh, pressure the Biden administration to then pressure uh, Speaker Pelosi. But you know what? This is a election year. It, the Democrats are in a tight race. There's the executive legislative tension. When, when faced with this sort of pressure coming indirectly through the executive branch, why would the Speaker of the House back down? Wouldn't that just create more incentive for the Speaker of the House to demonstrate resolve? So, I, I mean, that that bit is a little bit inexplicable to me. I mean, if they had wanted uh, Pelosi to to take a softer stance, delay the visit, whatever. I mean, I think they could have reached out to her more directly, but this sort of approach um, suggests to me um, a sort of bluntness that um, might not be the best for the sort of more delicate situations that we're facing at this point in time. Um, so th th that's one thing. And the other is, um, I mean, we've been talking a lot around Taiwan um, right now. I think we also have to recognize the fact that um, whether it's, one country, two systems. So uh, it's tied to the 92 consensus. It has no market in Taiwan. Um, it, it's just tremendously unattractive. Um, and so when you know, sure, Beijing will will you know rattle the sabers and express its unhappiness. That may prevent um, you know move towards de jure independence. And certainly, most Taiwanese they want the status quo um, and they want to keep it. Whether they eventually want independence or 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 unification, they want the status quo now. Um, and I think uh, that that suggests a unattractiveness of of China of China and the Chinese system uh, to people in Taiwan. And if that does not get uh, resolved, then the stalemate is is here to stay. And the sort of efforts to sort of elbow around will will happen and there's going to be uh more potential for escalation for accidents to happen um in terms of regional reactions it's i think um in southeast asia there was a lot of alarm um part of it is because of perhaps a inattention uh to what's been going on in taiwan so the pelosi visit of course it heightened a lot of attention to what's going but the uh flights across the median line the, the naval patrols uh the uh in fact even some of the missile tests not around taiwan but you know uh, further in the south china that's been happening uh, there's a trajectory um and uh it's just that before people weren't paying attention or maybe didn't want to pay attention but um the pelosi visit and its aftermath the um the chinese military exercises suddenly got uh, people in the region to realize, hey, you know what? Um, some of the, the missile test areas that China marked out, that's 20 nautical miles away from Philippine territorial uh, waters. Uh, that's 
mighty close. Um, and you know what? If there's going to be some sort of crisis, um, the U.S. might I mean, traditionally, they've sort of moved forces from the Pacific to the Middle East uh, and, and, and Central Asia via Southeast Asia, you know, over uh, Indonesian waters and airspace, Malaysian waters and airspace. So they will transit through Singapore. Um, so if there's a crisis, it's going to come. The U.S. forces are likely to come the other way. Hey, you know what? The uh, Beijing knows this, and they might try to delay uh, these efforts because that delay could be uh, significant, and that would mean a lot of pressure on Southeast Asian countries. Do you open your waters? Do you open your airspace? Do you not? Um, what kind of pressure is going to come from both Washington and and Beijing? And also this effort uh, to play on ethno nationalism on these diverse societies that could rip, rip these societies apart, right? And uh, I mean, in the 20th Party Congress uh, work report, um, there is a a paragraph Paragraph right where um, uh, state chairman uh, she talks about United Front and talks about watch um, how it's you know translated as uh, uh, Chinese nationals overseas. Um, but you know, even if it's Chinese, just Chinese nationals overseas, it's troubling enough. But it uh, traditionally can also uh, be read as ethnic Chinese communities uh, that are not Chinese nationals. Uh, that could create a lot of disruption for societies, uh, the, the very diverse societies in, in Southeast Asia. So I think there's a recognition uh, that. Uh, a conflict in Taiwan isn't just going to be uh, restricted to the Taiwan Strait, and I think that's worrying. But I, but I think governments in the region don't quite have an answer uh, for these kinds of issues just yet. Mm, mm. Very interesting. Uh, we've got ten minutes left, and um, I've got a couple topics. Um, you know, there's been a lot of questions coming in. Um, and the export controls that were mentioned by a couple of you, um, at least. And so let me just start with that. Um, the Commerce Department obviously announced new export controls on China's semiconductor industry. Um, the move continues the trend that we've seen in terms of, uh, you know, decoupling certain specialized dual-use technologies used for uh, both commercial but also military applications. Let me start with you, Dawei. Just very uh, simply, how are the U.S. export controls being being received in Beijing, and how might uh, China respond? Yeah, it's being received as part of the U.S. effort try to keep China's economy down. So I think this is a very blunt explanation here. Uh, yes, I know. Just as you said, the, the American friends talking about do use or other or human rights, this kind of thing, but it's interpreted here uh, in Beijing by almost the, uh, I will say, uh, majority people as just uh, trying to slow China's economy and try to uh, hinder the development of, of strategic industry. And uh, I think this, uh, those kind of ban, those kind of uh, export control measures, of course, will create trouble for China, for China's uh, industries, that's for sure. But I think uh, if you do that more, I mean, if the American side do it more and more, it will create trouble for the U.S., for the American companies, and also for the third parties. I think uh, it's challenging for the American companies uh, if the U.S. go along this road. And uh, if the U.S. press its uh, alliances uh, and the partners to do that, it will create trouble, pressure for, for, for countries like Singapore and other uh, or regions like mm -hmm. Taiwan. I think it's uh, the U.S. is testing its uh, alliances. Maybe that's not in... Uh, for the long run, it's not in the U.S. interest. Uh, I don't mm -hmm. think China, I don't think Beijing can do anything very specific to those bans. But um, for those trends, for those tendencies, I think China have to 
to improve its self-reliance in technology innovation. Mm. Ian Dawei, you know, talked about the U.S. effort to try to get allies and partners on board with uh, these export controls, and and who knows, maybe others in in other kind of frontier technology. What's your sense on on how uh, those countries will react, including Singapore? So I think um, these countries uh, that benefit from the tight U.S.-China connection, obviously don't uh, like this sort of decoupling but I mean it's also unclear where it's going to go because on on the one hand sure there's there's the um US uh, restrictions but you know there's not much you can do about it um and on the other hand as China's talking more about um you know being self-reliant uh in technology and all that you do have to wonder going forward what kind of market uh do you have right so I think it we're coming at a bit of, uh, to a bit of a crossroads, right? In terms of you know how third parties try to chart their way forward, um, where they want to be, and this is not about necessarily you know uh, supporting the U.S. or China, but it's about you know what kind of options are you trying to generate for yourself in a more contentious world? That past sort of experience of you know globalization, everyone getting along and making money. Well, I think that's gone for a while, right? Um, and it's countries like Singapore and others in the region, I think they were trying to convince themselves that we could go back to that world. Um, but I think now there's um, a slow realization that it's not happening, right? So before that talk about, oh, can't the US and China just get along and fix their problems? I think that's, um, to be honest, a bit of wishful thinking. Um, mm. the, the two capitals and their, pop and, and their politics will decide where they want to go. Whatever you say uh, as a third party doesn't matter that much. Uh, so the question is how you're going to brace yourself. Um, you know, uh, they say winter is coming, right? <laughs> so, you know, but there's no no real clear direction right now. And I think there's some scramble um, and a lot of trepidation. Thank you for that. Um, I want to go to the last question, if I could, because we've got five minutes left. And I want to hear from each of you um, about, you know, these reports that President Biden and President Xi might meet um, at the G20 on the margins. Uh, there's a lot, you know, of issues um, that are creating friction and difficulty in the relationship. So obviously, you know, one meeting uh, can't uh, resolve everything. But I'd be interested in 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 all three of you in your sense of how each side may be coming to this meeting, you know, what would each side be trying to accomplish? You know, what what could the leaders do in such a meeting uh, that would be helpful, you know, given the current poor state of the relationship? Um, and I'll start with Yun Sun. Thank you, Paul. That's really a hard question. My expectation is to keep realistic expectation um, mm. because if we look at the, the shape and the trajectory of the U.S.-China relations and look at the midterm election that will happen to the U.S. Congress, I have very uh, low expectation as for major positive news or major signs of improvement. Um, because those two leaders, they, they personal chemistry might matter, but only when the bilateral relationship is in a good is in a good shape. To hope that one meeting between Xi and Biden is suddenly somehow going to reverse 
or rescue uh, this relationship, I don't think that is realistic. But if they can get together and talk about, well, look at each other in the eye and try to talk about Taiwan and try to have some sense of the need for crisis management um, and to have strike some common understanding about the danger that is embedded in the bilateral relations, I would consider that a victory. Thank you. Thank you very much. Ian, um, as Yunsun said, these, these two leaders have a history. They, they uh, spent a lot of time together when they were both vice presidents. Um, but the last time they've seen each other was back in 2015. So it's been seven plus years. Um, what's your sense on what advice would you have? What, what can be accomplished in such a meeting? They did have a very long video conference. Um, but uh, I think despite them having some history, you know, Biden, uh, President Biden has said that you know, she's not his friend. Uh, so while they have some history, I think there is some, uh, there's still some distance between between the two of them. I'm going to be a little bit more pessimistic than, than uh, Sun Yun, uh, and say that I, I'm not sure whether chemistry all that will work, but the bare minimum is if the two sides at least have a gauge of each other such that there may be a reduction, not a removal, a reduction of the probability of miscalculation. I, I take that as a win, right? Because um, as uh, Dawe had mentioned earlier, right, the, the two sides have not had that much direct contact um, over the, the COVID period. Uh, there's uh, a lot of um, mutual suspicion, uh, degree of animosity driven by rhetoric from the U.S. side. And as uh, Sun Yun also mentioned, rhetoric from, from the Chinese side. So there's, I think, a lot of potential for misunderstanding and miscalculation. So I'm not even going with agreement, right? If they sort of figure out, okay, these these are some of the areas we want to be more careful about. We want to be more cautious. So we at least avoid some sorts of um, unintended escalation. I, th I think that's a plus. Yeah. You know, I remember you're talking about the lack of uh, contact. You know, I remember in the Bush administration, we had over 100 uh, official dialogues uh, with the Chinese side, over 100. And today, I, I, don't, I don't know if we have one, really. I'm not sure we have one official dialogue that's ongoing. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a supporter of them, of them at least meeting, right. And having the opportunity Dow, we're going to give you the last word, but my first question is going to be in your view, are they going to meet? We haven't heard an announcement that they're going to meet. Um, but if they do meet, which I hope they do, you know, what's your sense of, uh, what could be accomplished if anything? Uh, I, I don't have any uh, any inside news. Uh, I only heard rumors, uh, but I my hunch is uh, they I think they they are it's not very likely that they will they will meet. I think it's uh, it's it's uh, there is a quite high probability. And if they do meet, I hope just as uh, I I agree with all uh, three of you. I think if this style if this meeting can pave a way for more regular senior official dialogues between the two two sides i think that's a victory and if the two sides can uh, can announce that they they uh, they change some uh, the like the eight points china eight sanctions some of the china may announce uh, uh, lift some sanctions after the august visit those for instance dialogue over climate change i think that will be a victory and if we can agree to resume more uh, or to, to have more flights uh, between the two countries to work toward, towards that direction, I think that will be a victory. Anyway, I think uh, my expectation is low, but I hope it can pave a way for more 
communications next year. Dawei, it's a terrific, terrific way to, to end our discussion. It's the top of the hour. We've come up on our time. It's been a terrific discussion. We've we've covered quite a bit. Um, and I want to thank uh, each of you, Dawei, Ian Chong, Yun Sun, and of course, thank you for our audience for, for tuning in. As a reminder, our discussion will be posted online on the China in the World podcast site, uh, where you can listen to it again uh, if you want to hear it twice, or if you missed some of it uh, as well. And so thank you again to everyone for joining. Look forward to seeing you next time. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the China in the World podcast. For more episodes and research, please go to carnegieendowment.org. This episode was produced by Nathaniel Schur with assistance from Wang Yuanhang, Michael Malinconi, and Sama Kuba. The music was composed by Spencer Barnett.